All right, well, I'm excited to be able to start a, uh, a new study series with you guys tonight. Um, I've been wanting to do John for the Epistles of John for a long time, um, but uh, a lot of times it's, uh, oh yeah, I guess I need to pull it down. It's been just a situation where we didn't have enough time to really give it a good, to cover it well. And I think we have enough time. You guys are going to have to listen really fast. Um, but uh, no, we're, the, I'm going to try to just get as much in in our time that we have each week. And if we don't get through it, we'll just pick it up, you know, where we left off and finish it up the next week. But um, <clears throat> well, these are some really neat uh, letters that John wrote. And really, 1 John contains most of the theological content in the letters. John, Second uh, uh, John kind of reiterates um, some of the uh, the issues, and then Third John is kind of more of a personal um, address to a guy named Gaius. Um, and so, uh, anyway, we'll we'll get there. Uh, hopefully, by the end of May, we've got eight weeks between now, you know, including tonight, uh, as we finish up in May. And so, hopefully, we can get through uh, these three letters uh, in that time. Um, and so, let's just kind of talk about uh, some introductory information about. Um, First, second, and third John. So let me ask you, let me lob a softball out there. Who were these letters written by? John. Somebody said it. Did you say it? Well, good job. Good job. All right, so a guy named John wrote these, right? We, uh, um, we, huh? Wasn't it the same model John? Yeah, that's what most people think. And so um, most people believe that this John uh, was written that, that this was likely written by John the Disciple, but it could be somebody else that was referred to as the elder. Um, but most people believe that this is John the Disciple. So this is the one that wrote uh, the Gospel of John um, because a lot of the same language is used. We'll actually see here in chapter 1 a very similar type of language and structure in chapter 1 that the Gospel writer used in his chapter 1 of, of the Gospel of John. So most likely it is John the disciple. Um, the setting, uh, if it is John the disciple, he spent his last years in Ephesus. Um, so he probably would have written from uh, Ephesus. And this, would have, this letter would have been sent out to the churches in Asia. Um, and uh, it likely would have been written around 80 to 85 AD. Uh, so that would have been the time frame that was going on. And in the situation, um, there were some within the church who were teaching false doctrines. And it was stirring up fear and uh, dissension in the body. Um, and so they, uh, they had some people who were coming in and just teaching a false doctrine. There were also people who were leaving the church um, because they disagreed with what John had left them with, the information John had left them with. And so there were those in the church who wanted to stick with what they had been taught by John and what they had heard from the other apostles, what they had received from Jesus. Um, they wanted to stick with that, but then there were others who... <coughs> And believe something different and we're teaching something different and we'll we'll talk some more um, uh, about that and then the purpose uh, the four purposes that we can find in the gospel of John the first one is to uh, combat false teaching um, to combat uh, the false teachings that were kind of infiltrating there in the church um, another one is more of an ethical purpose um, which is to deal with the attitudes towards sin and the necessity of love for one another uh, we'll see that uh, this evening um, as we talk about uh, some of these things are here in chapter 1. So we, he was dealing with attitudes towards sin and the necessity of love uh, for one another. 
Um, the next one is uh, the purpose of uh, the John is pastoral. Uh, John obviously cared for the spiritual health of the church and for genuine fellowship among the believers. John's one of his favorite phrases to use for the church there uh, that he's writing to is little children. He calls them my little children. And it, was a de- it wasn't a demeaning term. It was a pastoral term. You know, it was like he's referring to these as his spiritual children, you know, those that he cares for and nurtures and wants to see them uh, see them grow. Um, in John, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he had this heart for the church that he wanted them to know uh, and grow in their faith. And then the last thing is personal. We'll see tonight, uh, John says that uh, his joy was tied to the faithfulness of the church. Uh, he says um, right there in, in verse 4 of chapter 1, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So there was a personal element to it, that as they grew in the faith, his joy would be um, made complete. And so let's read chapter 1 and uh, see what it has to say. So we're in First John. Uh, we're going to read all of chapter 1, which is only 10 verses. Um, but it's uh, packed full of stuff. So First John chapter 1. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us, Uh, our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us all right so that's chapter one and you can see there's full of lots of stuff so let's get right into it um so the first thing that he talks about is this word of life so this first section is kind of about about this word of life um and he says there at the in the in the first verse he says what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then he talks about it being revealed and we testify to you. Um, if you think back to the first verse of the Gospel of John, how does that have a, what kind of parallel does that have here to this first verse of the, of the letter of John? When it says, what we have heard from the beginning. You remember John 1.1? 1, 1? John 1.1 1, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, God, was with God, and the Word was God. And so you see this similar kind of language that the writer is using here. Um, well, in the Gospel of John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, talking about in the beginning of creation, that Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. So he's uh, kind of setting down this understanding that Jesus is eternal, that he's not a created being, that he is eternal. Here in the first verse, he says what was from the beginning. He's really talking about the beginning of the Christian movement. So the beginning of the development of the Christian faith. And so from the beginning 
uh, when Jesus began his earthly ministry is what he's talking about. And so he talks about this firsthand knowledge. Think about what we just read. Verse 1 says, we have heard, uh, we have seen with our eyes, we have observed, we have touched with our hands. Verse 2 says, um, what was revealed to us. Uh, we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father. Uh, we have seen it, and it was revealed to us. And then verse 3 says, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. And so John was very significantly emphasizing firsthand knowledge of, uh, that they had of Jesus. So he is really reiterating um, that they have this firsthand knowledge. Um, and so we have to ask the question, why does somebody go to such a great extent to emphasize the fact that we, these people have seen, heard, and even touched Jesus? Can y'all think of any reason why he might be emphasizing that so much? Credibility. Okay, there's cr- credibility. He wants, to, wants them to remember that, hey, we have actually seen this and touched it and felt it. Okay, all right. Anything else? Any other ideas why he might be bringing this out? Well, there was a teaching that was going on uh, called Gnosticism. Uh, and Gnosticism emphasized two things. It, um, it, was a, uh, the, it emphasized that the way of salvation was through secret superior knowledge uh, rather than just through faith. You had to have this secret knowledge and you only receive this knowledge if you were initiated into this group. They also believed that all matter was evil, but spirit was good. And so this uh, likely this group that, that John is writing about that was kind of separating out from the church were following some Gnostic beliefs. So they were saying, look, it's not about having faith in Jesus. And Jesus wasn't really a divine being and man. He wasn't God and man you know, together in the body. What you really need for salvation is this special knowledge. And so they were teaching something foreign to what the, uh, what the gospel was. And so he's emphasizing here that we have seen it and we have heard it, that we have touched Jesus uh, for, some, for multiple reasons. Um, if this Gnosticism was kind of in view, then what John would be having to do is to focus on the fact that Jesus truly was human, that he really was uh, human. So, he, so they could, he's saying, look, you touched him, uh, you've uh, heard him, you have seen him. He was a human man. You know, Jesus was a human man. Um, but then also, he had to reiterate, reiterate the fact that he was spirit, that he was God in the flesh. There's two kinds of Gnosticism that he would have been talking against. And um, one of them is Docetic Gnosticism. And what that taught was that Jesus uh, was a spirit in the form of a man. That he wasn't actually a man, but he, that he looked like a man. So you couldn't go up and you couldn't touch Jesus. You couldn't shake his hand. You couldn't give him a a hug or wrap your arm around or something like that. And so they taught that he was a spirit in the form of a man, so it appeared that he was a man. The other uh, kind of Gnosticism was called Serinthian Gnosticism, and it taught that Jesus was a man, where the, and the spirit came upon him at his baptism, and then whenever he went to the cross, um, the spirit left him, and that's why Jesus said, my, father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so both of those did, denied the divinity of Christ, and denied the atoning um, effect of Christ's uh, sacrifice. And so John was emphasizing this first-hand knowledge they had of Jesus. Um, he wanted to remind them what their belief was based on. Their belief was based on that gospel message that they had initially heard. 
Um, and uh, he wanted them to remember that so that they could remember the things that they had seen, the things that they had heard. Obviously, John saw Jesus. He was a disciple. He followed him around. He was aware of who Jesus was and what Jesus said. There's a good chance that many of these people that he's writing to in the churches were also people who had seen Jesus. Uh, if you remember, <clears throat> after Pentecost, uh, Paul talks about how, I mean, yeah, Paul talks about um, how Jesus had appeared to 600 disciples at once. He said, most of whom are still alive. And so what he was basically saying is, look, there are hundreds of eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And so there's a good chance that many of the people here in these churches were some of those people. Um, I've already mentioned that John was likely writing against uh, Gnosticism. Um, so this is probably something that he was trying to, uh, uh, to, to write against. Um, John was emphasized the results of the message of eternal life. And so when you get to uh, verse 2, uh, it says that life was revealed and we have seen it. We testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and which was uh, revealed to us. Um, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he emphasized the results of this eternal life, and he emphasized it in two different ways. The first way is fellowship with other believers. And so one of the results of eternal life is that you are initiated into this fellowship of believers. Um, one of the requirements for membership at Green Acres Baptist Church is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and that you have been scripturally baptized, which means that you've been immersed. You've, been, you've gone under the water and you've come back out following your baptism. There are other types of baptism that different denominations um, practice. Uh, Catholic denomination and some Presbyterian and Episcopal, they baptize children as babies. Um, that is not a believer's baptism. That's an infant baptism. Um, we believe as, ba as, as Baptist Christians that you should be baptized in obedience to Christ after you accept Him as your Lord and Savior. So that's why we call it believer's baptism. Um, and that is a, uh, so faith in Christ and uh, baptism is a requirement for a membership in our church. That's because if the church is a family, a body of believers under the Lordship of Christ, you do not want people who are not believers as a part of that fellowship. Uh, we believe that Christ is our head, uh, the head of the church. I'm not the head of this church. Uh, no committee is the head of this church. Christ is the head of Green Acres Baptist Church. Even Brother David is not the head of our church. He's our pastor, shepherd, leader, but he's an under-shepherd underneath the Lordship of Jesus. And so we, we believe that Christ is our head, but that through the Spirit, he speaks to our body of believers, and that's how we make our decisions. So if we decide to embark on a ministry that's done through the leadership of the members of this church, through the inspiration of the Spirit. And so in order for that to take place in the right way, the people that are making those decisions need to be believers. So that's why we uh, believe that you need to be a believer before you are part of our fellowship. And so eternal life brings you into that fellowship with other believers. Um, <clears throat> it also brings you into fellowship with the Father. Uh, and with Jesus Christ. And so that's what it says. It says, You may have this fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the eternal life brings you into this fellowship uh, with the Father as well. And the word that's used there, fellowship, is koinonia. You may have heard that before. The Greek word is koinonia. And um, it carries a lot of weight other than some of the ways that we use fellowship here. Uh, if I say, We're going to have a fellowship this Sunday night, what does that mean? 
It means we're going to eat, right? It means, it means we're going to set up... Coconut pie. Amen, brother. If, if, if you don't have coconut pie, I don't know if it's a fellowship. Um, but, uh, you know, when you say a fellowship like as a plural uh, or as a noun, it means we're going to set up some tables, we're going to put some chairs around it, we're going to eat some food, and we're going to fellowship, all right? Um, at Terrell, the, uh, they used to have a senior adult thing every like fourth Thursday or something. They called it Food, Fun, and Fellowship. You know, because if you can alliterate it and if you can make food, fun, and fellowship all together, I mean, that's a good event, right? And so, um, you know, that's what we think of when we think of fellowship a lot of times. It's a, a time where we get around and socialize. Um, but fellowship in the Greek word, koinonia, um, implies partnership in something. So if you are... Uh, fellowshipping with somebody, then you are partnering with them in the mission that they have or in the activity that they have or in the purpose that they have. And so us, in fellowship with other believers and in fellowship with God, we are partnering with other believers and we are partnering with God to carry out the mission uh, which we, He has, has set, us, set us on. And so that's what, that's what fellowship implies there. And then finally, John emphasized the completeness of their joy. Uh, verse 4 says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, complete, uh, that word that is used there, uh, it means permanently filled. So complete means permanently filled. So it's something that is uh, total. If you, it makes me think back to um, whenever Jesus said, I have not come to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Uh, that meant that he didn't come to get rid of the law to kick it out the door he came to complete all of the requirements of the law on our behalf because if somebody in the old testament had been able to complete the law like actually live according to the law you could have earned your way to heaven if you could have been a perfect law abider for your whole life then you could have earned your way to heaven that was the that was the way the law was set up but it was so extreme it was to show us that in reality there's no way that we could do it there's no way that you could ever go through your whole life without coveting something. You're gonna see somebody's new car and you're gonna want it. You're gonna see somebody's new, you know, back then I guess you'd see somebody's new donkey and you'd want it, you know, or something like that. There was gonna be a time where you messed up in the law and you needed grace. And so all of this was fulfilled in Jesus. He kept the law perfectly and then he gave us his perfection on the cross. And whenever we accept him as savior, then, uh, um, then we receive that. And so that's what it means. It means to be permanently Filled. And so joy is something that we can be full in our life. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a sense that whenever you are with the Lord, whenever you are in fellowship with the Lord, in a relationship with Him, your joy finds completeness. It finds fulfillment um, in His presence. Now, joy does not mean happiness. So joy is much deeper than mere happiness. Has there been a time this week where you were not happy? Yeah, we all raise our hands on that, right? You know, there's been a time this week when we are not happy. But did that, happy, that time this week when you were not happy, did that time by definition steal your joy in Christ? No. Now, it may have if you allowed it to. But just because you're unhappy does not mean that you are, by definition, not joyful. You can be joyful in the midst of chaos and in the midst of tragedy. Um, I found this verse in Nehemiah. He's talking about 
Uh, they're in the midst of difficulties and trials. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so in the midst of the trials that Nehemiah and those Israelites who were going back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they were being attacked on all sides by people who were even their relatives, um, he says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so as they found joy and perseverance in the Lord, God's, uh, uh, God's strength is where they found that joy. And so we find joy in the realization that the Lord is with us no matter what we're going through. Um, that he is our, uh, our protector, he's our Lord, he's our Savior, he's our provider, um, and that we have that koinonia fellowship with him. And so this is kind of a summarization of what that word of life is that John talks about there in verse 1, that we have seen and heard and touched this word of life, and that this word of life brought eternal life for us, referring to Jesus Christ. All right? Let's move on to the next section there, which is sin and fellowship. Now, that's an odd category to put together, um, but I think that we'll see, we see here in this next five, uh, six verses that these are the two things he's talking about. He's talking about sin, and he's talking about fellowship with the Lord. And so what I want us to do is, is just kind of go through these verses from 5 to 10 um, and uh, talk about uh, the things that we see there, and I'm going to put them into two categories here in just a moment. Before we get to those categories, I want to look at verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. All right, so he says God is light. Does that mean literally that God is beams of brightness shining down on us? No. What was the, one of the first things that God created in the beginning? Light, right? God said, let there be light. So God can't literally be light. Why? Because light is a created thing. And so, you know, people have taken this out of context before and said that God is, you know, is, is uh, these bright beams of light, you know, or whatever. Uh, if you go to the book of Revelation, you see that God does produce light, that he, uh, uh, there is no need for the sun. Uh, in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, it says there's no need for the sun because the, the God is the light. So God lights the city. His glory is the, the light of the new Jerusalem. And so God emits light, but God is not, by, you know, not light itself. Um, so <clears throat> this doesn't literally mean that he, uh, uh, that he is light. So what does it mean? Well, this is referring to God's pureness in his, mor- uh, in his morality, pureness in his character. Um, if you... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, if you think about um, you know anything that is white or, or bright you know or something in, in some way, um, that you can almost always find some sort of imperfection. Um, you know, if you put up a brand new whiteboard, if you look close enough, you can probably find a speck on it somewhere, or a piece of dust that's landed on it, or something like that. It's not a perfect white you know piece of board. If you go find a, if you're going to buy a car, you know, a brand new white car, you can probably find a speck of dirt on there somewhere, or a little scratch, or a little nick, or something like that on there somewhere. Well, God, in His perfection, is absolutely 100% perfect, um, and that's why it says He is light, and in Him there is absolutely no darkness. Uh, and if you think back to um, John chapter one, He talks about uh, the uh, the the life was. Uh, uh, in him was light, and the light was the life of men. Um, Jesus was equated with this light that brings new life. 
And so it's a theme that John likes to use. And so God is light in that he is perfect in his morality, perfect in his character, that he illumines our life and gives uh, focus and direction for our life. Uh, and there's absolutely, without a doubt, no deceit in him, no sin in him, nothing uh, immoral or impure in the Lord. And so that is kind of the, the foundation that he uses before he begins talking about our sin uh, in light of God's holiness. And so let's look at the negatives that, uh, that John points out. Okay, The first negative uh, is that we cannot claim fellowship with God and continually walk in sin or else we are sinners and are workers of evil. And so this is verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. And so if we claim fellowship, yet we walk in the darkness, um, then we are liars. We are people who are deceitful and liars about, the, uh, uh, about who we truly are in Christ. And so uh, we are liars, and then we also perform evil. Um, it says that uh, we, uh, uh, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. And so the reciprocal of not practicing the truth is practicing what is false, practicing what is evil. And so if we um, say we have fellowship with him, if we are partners with the Lord, if we are joined to him in his ministry and, and he is joined with us in our life, yet we walk in darkness, we are liars. Um, so question, does that mean that if you... Uh, sin whatsoever after you're a believer that you are or after the, after you make a decision for Christ does that mean that you're not a believer no is there anybody in here who has been perfect in their life since accepting Christ as your savior no I, I know I haven't been so he's not talking about a sinless perfection well, well he'll address that here in just a moment he's not talking about a sinless perfection but he's talking about a ongoing pattern of sinfulness in which you don't repent from or that you have no desire or no inclination to turn away from this sin. So if you continually walk in a sin and refuse to address it and refuse to surrender that sin to the Lord, then um, you are a liar. And you say you have fellowship with the Lord, then you're a liar. If you can walk in sin and have no guilt, no remorse for that, then you seriously have to question whether you have surrendered your life to Christ. Because the Holy Spirit within us is going to be grieved over those actions in your life. And so... Uh, we, uh, we cannot claim fellowship with God and continually walk in sin. The next negative is found in verse 8. Um, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so the negative there is that we cannot claim to have no sin, or we deceive ourselves, and we do not practice what is right. And so the first one that we saw is that if we uh, walk in, walk in uh, darkness... Um, and we say that we're not, then we lie to ourselves, that we're liars. He just says basically we're liars. Now we've gotten to the point where we are deceiving ourselves. And so not only are we lying to the world around us, but we're also lying to ourselves. Now, if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves uh, and do not <clears throat> uh, practice what is right. And so if we say we have no sin, uh, that truth is not, um, is not in us. And so we cannot claim to have no sin or we deceive ourselves. And then the next one is found in verse 10. We cannot say that we haven't sinned, or else we make God a liar, and his truth of his word is not alive in us. And so we, uh, if we continue to say we have never sinned, um, then we make God out to be a liar. And these are all teachings that mirror some of the Gnostic beliefs. Um, Gnosticism would say, um, hey, 
Brandy, we usually kind of slide down when that sun starts getting in our face, so feel free to move if you need to. Um, uh, Gnosticism would say that the, the flesh is bad, but the spirit is good. And so what a Gnostic would say is they would say, you know, me, Dustin, my spirit has not, does not have sin. My body is evil and my body has sinned. But my body is nothing. My body is evil matter. My soul is good, and my soul will go to be with the Lord, but my body will stay here and decay. Whereas the, the gospel tells us that our bodies are going to be resurrected and restored uh, at, the, uh, at the second coming of Christ. And so that's what Gnostic teaching would say. So you could go around and say, yeah, I am without sin. Well, I just saw you the other day steal something in the marketplace. No, no, no. That was my body. But my soul does not sin. You see the dichotomy they were trying to make there and and so john is saying no you're a fool if you uh say that you have no sin Um, i was reading a quote um uh from charles charles spurgeon on this and he said um he who can look in the ocean uh, he who cannot find water in the ocean is no more a fool than he who can look in his life and not find sin you know so if you can look in your life and say yeah i have no sin in my life then you're probably just as likely to go out to the ocean and look at the water and say, huh, I don't see any water. It's just, it's just you know, a cluelessness to be able to look at your life and say that you do not sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this was an inspired word of God right here. So if you say that you have no sin, then you are saying that God is lying whenever he says this verse. And so those are some of the negative aspects of, uh, of this section, but let's look at the positives. So these, always, these all have a reciprocal. And the positive to the first negative is that when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and are cleansed by Jesus. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So the two things that it says there is that we have fellowship with one another, and that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so as we walk in the light of God, um, then we have that, um, uh, that purity in our life through the blood of Christ. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, the Psalm 119, I think 106, um, you know, says that God's word is a light unto my feet and a lamp, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, you know, that... God's word has been equated with light throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. So the best way to make sure that God's light is getting into your life and to walk in that light is to be plugged into God's word. If you are plugged into the scripture, then you are plugged into God's light source. And he is helping you walk in that relationship with the Lord. The next positive is that when we confess our sin, God forgives us. And cleanses us. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and our sins and cleanse us. That word confess is not a one and done type verb. Uh, in the Greek, you know, Greek have a lot of extra nuances on their verbs. Um, this is an ongoing action kind of verb. And so what this is saying is that if we confess and confess, and confess, and confess, and confess, and confess, then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So it means that we don't just confess one time and we're done. We confess every time. So, con- so confessing your sin uh, as you confess the Lord as your Savior is not the last time you have to confess your sin. 
You know, we, we come to the point where we realize that we need a Savior. And we say, Lord, I realize I need a Savior, that I'm a sinner, that I can't save myself. Uh, I confess my sin to you and ask you to forgive my sin and cleanse me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. We do that whenever we accept the Lord as our Savior in our life. But that's not the only time we confess sin. Every night when you, you know, hit, let your head hit the bed, you need to think back and you know, think, are there sins that I need to confess? Even before that, as you recognize sin in your life or sin you're currently doing, you need to stop, confess that sin, and ask God to cleanse you and, and to uh, you know, restore you. A way that I like to look at it, I'll uh, draw you all a picture here. See, you guys are not in my Sunday school class. Y'all don't get to enjoy my pictures. Y'all need to, y'all need to ask Bobby Reagan. Um, you need to ask Bobby Reagan about um, my pictures on Sunday morning during Bible study, I guarantee you he'll smile from ear to ear because he just loves them so much. Um, but, you know, if you have a windshield in your car, you know, you're, you're driving down the road, there's your steering wheel and everything, and um, you, uh, you know, you're driving down the road, what do you, especially if you go out into East Texas around April, May, and June, what do you hit? Everything. You hit <laughs> bugs, right? You hit all these bugs. And, uh, you know, those little black bugs, they call them love bugs. Yes. Man, those things, you can tell when somebody's been, uh, you know, Especially towards, tw- east, towards Louisiana. Yeah, Nacogdoches, over towards Louisiana, oh, further yeah. south. You know, you guys from south Louisiana, y'all probably know all about this, right? But, I've had to stop cleaning the windshield to be able to see out. Yeah. Seriously. Exactly, exactly. And if you use the windshield washers, it just makes it work. But, you know, you hit one bug. You hit a few bugs, that's not a big deal. You can still see, okay? You hit a few more bugs, well, things start getting bad. You know, things start, things start getting worse. I mean, it gets to where eventually, you know, you can't see. But what really makes it bad, have you ever had a kind of a, a lot of bugs on the windshield and then you started driving west as the sun was setting? And what does that sun do? It reflects off of every single one of those. So it makes every single... Every single bug, I mean, that much more worse. And it makes sure you can't even see out of your window. Well, really, that's what, that's what this is talking about. Um, the sin in our life is like these bugs on the windshield. And if, the more bugs we get because we haven't confessed them, the more bugs we get because we haven't confessed them, the harder it is to see God's plan and purpose for our life. And it really makes it hard whenever the light of the gospel shines on those bugs because it makes them so obvious and it's like God is saying, hey, stop at, the next, stop at the next gas station and clean off your windshield. Because what he wants you to do is to make your windshield look like this so that you continue seeing the purpose that God has, uh, has for you as a believer. And so, so we need to make sure that we have confession, um, confession in our life. Now, that wasn't too bad a drawing, was it? No, it was actually really good. It was yeah. very realistic. Well, good. Y'all well, be, sure <laughs> be sure and let Bobby know that you enjoyed it. I'm going to say the word in that art class that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was paying attention that day. So, anyway, all right. So, back to our, your page there. I've got Proverbs 28, 13. It says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a truth from God's Word, that if you um, conceal your sin, it's, you're not going to prosper. Now, remember, Proverbs are Proverbs universal truths or generally true statements. They're generally true, right? Because do you know somebody who has all kinds of sin and they hide it, but yet they prosper? Well, you may not know it because they hide the sin. But 
you know people like that, right? And we see people in, in our culture who we know some of the things that they're doing in their private or personal lives where they're immoral or dishonest, and they are prospering like crazy, right? But in general, the truth is, the one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and renounces them will find mercy. So there's two sides here. Not just confession, but confession and repentance. Confession and turning away. And you will find God's mercy. And so this is a, uh, a, uh, you know, an important thing for us to remember. Uh, that we need to confess our, uh, confess our sin. Now I've got one more verse that I've got on your page. And I didn't, um, I didn't put it here on the slide. And I don't have my paper. But it's Romans chapter... Is that Romans chapter 3? 3.23. Somebody want to read it for me? Or if not, I can get to it and read it. Okay. So Romans 3.23 through uh, 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I put, I just realized I put that on a different translation of your sheet. Let me see that. So that last verse down there, you see that I've underlined a couple of words. It says this, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So that verse that we just read uh, back in John um, says that if we confess our sins, uh, He is faithful and righteous to forgive, us, forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have a different translation that says that if you confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what does that mean? Okay, Well, it's saying that God is faithful to forgive our sins means that what He has said He will do, He will do. So if he says, I will confess your sin if you come and confess it, then he's faithful to do that. He's a God of his word. But he's also a God of justice, which means that he has to punish sin. So he can forgive sin, which means that he wipes it away, that he doesn't remember your sin anymore, that he does not hold your sin against you. So he's faithful to do that, but he also has to be faithful to his character in punishing sin. He must be a just God. And so the reason that I had that, that verse there in Romans 3.23 is because it kind of explains this process. Um, uh, 3.26. Um, it means that it says that God can be through the sacrifice of Christ and through putting all of the punishment on Christ. It allows God to be just to punish sin. But it also allows him to be ju- the justifier. The one who pronounces us innocent. So since God has Christ dying on the cross for our sins, he's able to pour out the wrath of all of his wrath against sin on Christ to be just to punish sin. But on our behalf, he's able to justify us, um, which means that he does not count our sins against us, that whenever he sees us, he sees us as holy, as innocent, as sinless. Um, I like to define the word justify or justification is just as if I'd never sinned. So if you ever wonder what does it mean to be justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And so God is able to be just to be a holy God, to punish sin, but also to be our justifier, just as if we had never sinned. And so this kind of sets the stage for the, uh, the rest of the gospel, uh, this, uh, this letter of John. 
um, that God is, uh, that we have this word of eternal life, that we know who he is. We've seen him, we've touched him, we've heard him, we know who Jesus is, and that we need to walk in a life of holiness and fellowship with him. You know, it's not enough just to know who Jesus is. You've got to walk in fellowship with Jesus to really experience eternal life. And so that's what we're going to get more of as we continue on in the, uh, in the following chapters. Um, any other questions or comments or corrections on, on any of that? All right, good deal. Well, if you have any questions, be sure and let me know. Uh, let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord.